So John chapter 13, 18 to 30, the title of the message, When You Give Satan Control. Here's some trivia. I'm not going to get back to this. When we get to uh, the, the answers, you'll know. I'm not going to just give you the answers, but here's some trivia, and this, maybe they're not so trivial. How was Simon Judas' father? That came up last week, and some of you have asked questions. That might be answered in our text today. Who is Ahithophel? Some translations say Ahithophel. And what does he have to do with our text today? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but if I were to ask you to raise your hands, some of you would hesitate when I'd ask this. Do you know? Um, Because it's kind of somewhat, well, it's abstract. We don't talk about it. And then another question, who is Hushai? And what does he have to do with our text? Same thing. If I were to ask you the question, you'd be like, uh... I don't know, most people. And how is it fair that Satan went into Judas and Judas is accountable for his actions? That one might not be so trivial. So before we get into our text, we need to back up into last week's because it ties in. John chapter 13, verse 2, during supper... When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. And what he did next was very special. It's the foot washing thing, and if you don't know a whole lot about it, you can read your Bibles and read our text from last week. And if you want to kind of get the practical application, last week as I talked, I gave a personal story about a man whose name was Art Hammond, who I had, I had been asked to protect his dignity by taking care of his physical needs when he could not take care of himself. And his wife couldn't do it. Nurses could do it, but he didn't want the nurses to do it. He wanted his dignity protected in the last moments of his life, and I felt honored to do it. Not at first, but I learned this lesson that Jesus taught with the fish washing. I learned it practically with what I had to go through. And what Jesus taught was this. Here's a chart up behind me. I did it last week. I want to show you again selfishness versus selflessness. We'll throw some colors up there. You'll see the red and black, red for don't green for go. Uh, And then you'll see a shift because what's supposed to happen in your life and my life is we're supposed to shift from selfishness to selflessness. It's, It's almost like we're born selfish and then parents who mean well uh, teach to have more of it. You know, mine, mine. We play those games. And then as we become adults, when we are that selfish, then we end up being repulsive to other people and very unhelpful. And Jesus taught the opposite end of that, selflessness in that story was very, very well illustrated of the foot washing. He taught humility and selflessness. So we will pick up, I believe, let me make sure I'm doing this right, yeah, With verse 18 as our text, Jesus begins, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
a servant, and that actually can be translated slave, is not greater than his master. Now, this is verse 16 from our text last week. Nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And we'll get into chapter 15 later, and we'll learn more about this. Verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So Jesus did the foot washing thing and then told his disciples and us, this is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to go out of our way to do the gross, nasty, whatever is necessary things to be selfless, to serve others like slaves to other people. That's what we're supposed to do. Submit ourselves in that way to others. And then we will be exemplifying Jesus because that's what he did. Now we can pick up with verse 18. Our text begins today. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Already we're getting complicated. This is a quote from Psalm Chapter 41, verse 9, and this is the psalm. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. I want you to notice the similarities. You'll see he who ate my bread, and you'll see that in there also, who ate my bread in those two texts. Let's talk about that just for a, a little bit. What that means is, I trusted, and of course it's even stated there in the Psalm 41, When you have people over or you go over to other people's homes, a lot of times the conversation ends up being the most deep in the kitchen. You wind up at the table in the dining room or just around something in the kitchen or around each other. It's just a, a place of intimacy. That's why when you read about the Restoration Churches, and I hope you have, the Campbells, Thomas Campbell, passed on to his son Alexander Campbell, who passed on to his children, the idea that families should be sitting around the table. And that's, a, that's intimate. You, you should do that. In the world in which we live today, that's less and less a thing. But being around the table is an intimate thing. Now, what just happened in our story last week They were around the table. Jesus got up from the table and went back to the table. It is an intimate moment. And in this discussion, he's saying, he who ate my bread. This is, this is someone that he, he feels close to. If you're, if you're dining with someone, it it implies an intimate relationship. And that's why it's important to, uh, to gather around the table as families. And in both situations, the person betrayed felt extra betrayed because they were close. They ate at the same table. Okay, then the other part, lifted his heel against me. You'll see that underlined in red. And in Psalm 41, has lifted his heel against me. Now, this is very interesting because there's different opinions about what this psalm is addressing but let's talk about what it's about first. What We don't talk like this. We don't, we don't say, oh, yeah, she lifted her heel against me. Well, what does that mean? She raises her foot up. What does that mean? It's, it's pretty simple, actually. 
And it was very loud to me when I was milking cows. I don't know if you knew I did that, but I, I milked cows in a dairy. It was a small dairy. We only had 50. And as I was hands-on with a very disgruntled cow, um, I got up from there and I went to do something behind the cow. And it even had one of those things on it that you, you put up under it so it hooks up under its back leg and it makes it like, oh, I'm not gonna raise my leg because when it raises its leg and kicks, it hurts. And cows usually kick forward, not like horses that kick backwards. Uh, but this cow was not happy, she was not happy with me, so for whatever reason, when I turned around and I had someone watching, a kid was right with me, and I turned around and that kid, or that cow, kicked me right in the middle of my chest. Threw me into the wall. I mean, that, that was a hard kick. I kept the t-shirt for years because it stained it, and like that's where I got kicked. Very fortunate that I didn't have broken bones. But you don't ride cows. That's a dumb idea. People ride horses and mules, you know, in Jesus' day and in the Old Testament when in David's day. And when you have your mule or your horse, you trust that animal. You, you become intimate with that animal. Uh, you, you ride that animal. You feed that animal. You take care of that animal. When it's been a long day, you make sure the animal is able to rest and, and be nourished so you have a trust relationship. And if that animal raises its heel against you, it means it kicks you. There's no more trust. No more. That's not a nice thing to do. It hurts. That's all this means. So he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me, as Jesus is speaking, is connected to this psalm, which David is talking about something in particular, someone that he trusted has betrayed him this close friend. Now, almost all scholars believe that I could read that this is talking about Absalom. Now, some of you remember this story. Some of you have no clue. So I will remind you, this story is found, here you go, in the Old Testament, in 2 Samuel chapter, chapters 15 to 18. You back up into 14 and you read a little bit about some of the characters, but we'll go ahead and we'll talk about uh, some in particular First of all, we'll talk about Absalom. And Absalom, you'll see his name pop up behind me. This is the uh, third son of David. And Absalom is nice looking, well-spoken, very well-liked. He was raised in luxury. He liked the finer things. And everybody knew it. It appeared that Absalom was actually raised up to become the next leader. That's the, the feel that you had about Absalom. And he had that feeling about himself because prematurely what he started doing was he started greeting people who had grievances against the king, his own father. And Absalom, for four years, actually greeted people that would come with issues about David with the king. Like, huh. I got a problem. And he would listen to their issues and he'd say, well, you know what? There's no one here to represent you. And if there was, I mean, if I was here to represent you, then I would take care of your problem. He did that for four years so that a large number of people began to think, and you know, if he were his king, things would be taken care of. Things would be a whole lot better if Absalom was king. 
because nothing's happening for me now. David's doing nothing. But Absalom, he would take care of me. So he was a very, very snaky politician. And what he did is he decided with this four-year conspiracy, he decided to do a little bit more. So now I want to introduce you to Ahithophel, or Ahithophel, depending on your translation. Who is this? This is a sage. This is a, a person of wisdom. It's a person that everybody really clung to the words that came out of his mouth. He was a whole lot like Balaam, a sage of his day as well. And both of them had the same error. They both got so full of themselves. That's why I brought up the selfishness versus selfless, selflessness. There's Balaam and Ahithophel both had the same problem. You see, Absalom wanted to, he actually wanted to kill his father so he could become king. And some of you, that's a foreign idea because you, you love your children and you, you would think your children would reciprocate, but Absalom had been so blinded by his own selfishness that he had forgotten how much David loved him, how much David had taken care of him, how much love his father had given to him was completely disregarded because now he wanted his time and it's time for dad to go. So he got with Ahithophel and he said, hey, what, what would you advise? Now, most scholars believe that this text in Psalm 41, 19, this is in a, in a, a whole psalm within it about a bunch of people that have, because that's David's life. I don't know if you know much about David's life, but people that he respected and people that he trusted stabbed him in the back multiple times. People that should have been loyal to him were not. And people that should have loved him in return did not. That was his life. And Absalom didn't, and Ahithophel didn't, but the scholars, they seem to universally believe that this psalm is about Absalom, his own son, who turned his back on him. But I suspect it could be about Ahithophel because this was a good friend of David's, not just a son. He's a good friend, a confidant, an advisor that he, that he listened to his wisdom on a regular basis. I should tell you this. This is pretty cool. You might not know this about Ahithophel, but he, and by the way, he dies in the story, and I'll tell you in a minute how he dies, and it's sad. He was only 33. But he would have a descendant later, be his granddaughter, Bathsheba. It's fascinating, isn't it? In Jewish uh, traditions, uh, it is believed that part of his downfall in this story was that he got into some stuff he shouldn't have and looking for signs in the stars and things like that. And he got into some things looking for wisdom and he started to try to interpret some of the things he was understanding. And what he was actually seeing was prophecies of Bathsheba. And he, he mistook it for something else. But he advised Absalom of how you could pull this off and kill David. 
You should read it. It's a it's a very complex overthrow idea. But there's another character. I'll introduce you to him now. His name starts with an H. You'll see it pop up behind me. Hushai. Hushai was a very good friend of David's. And unlike his son and his other good friend, this friend was loyal. Isn't it nice to have loyal friends? May I suggest to you, be one. Hushai was loyal to David. And Hushai, David kind of heard that, oh, there's some undertow going on. There's some things going on. People are hating on me and Mm, I'm not sure who's all get involved, but it doesn't look, it doesn't sound good. So Hushai, David's friend, agreed. David talked to him, and he agreed to inject himself, to just interject himself into the whole situation and figure out what's going on and let me know. So Hushai does this, and he gains the trust of Absalom. And Absalom, after he gets this advice from Ahithophel about how to kill David, um, he says, bring in Hushai. Let's see what he has to say. And Hushai says, uh, this time Ahithophel has given you some bad advice. We all know David is a very powerful man. This is not going to end well if you do what Ahithophel said to do. Let me tell you what I think you should do. So he developed a plan that he, of course, told David about, and David was able to solve the problem. But before he solved the problem, and by the way, in solving the problem, he said, please give mercy to my son. Have, be, be merciful. But that's not what happened. Absalom was, it's a crazy turn of events. He actually got stuck in an oak tree. It, it sounds like he was hanging by his head in an oak tree. His, his horse went fast, got spooked or something. He's hung up in this oak tree and he can't get down. And he ended up being speared and then killed. And it was a horrible ending. And David was crushed when he found out that his son was dead. His love for his son was great. He didn't want bad things to happen to his son while his son was trying to kill him. But what about Ahithophel? What happened to him? I said he died. Yeah, what happened to him? He heard that Absalom was not going to follow his advice. And what that necessarily meant was David is probably going to find out. David is probably going to conquer. And I am going to be put on trial for my suggestion. I betrayed my friend. So he went home and got his things in order before everything happened, and he hung himself. That was his, that was his demise. Why am I telling you all this? Because it came out of Psalm 41.9. It might be about Ahithophel. It might be about Absalom. Either way, David had very close people that betrayed him. And in this particular moment, he reaches back to a psalm that all of his disciples know. And he brings this to light, how David felt so crushed that people would turn their backs on him and try to kill him. Why is he bringing this up after he just taught him how to be unselfish? <laughs> because he's talking about Judas. And Judas is right there with them, eating with them. 
Verse 19 and 20 continues in our text. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. So he's prophesying about his own betrayal. He says in verse 20, truly, truly, that's amen, amen. So let it be. This is a fact. This is a fact. I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So if people receive a genuine Christian, and there shouldn't be a need to say genuine in front of that. And if a people receive a genuine Christian, they're receiving Jesus, and that necessarily means they're receiving the Father. Verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, amen, amen. This is a fact. This is a fact. I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, in this intimate moment, after he just taught this selflessness, after he just washed the disciples' feet, he humbled himself to the the point of a slave and washed their nasty feet. Washed his hands, I'm sure, and then got back to the table around everybody. It's back to an intimate moment. And he says, one of you is going to betray me. And if you think about it, the one who is going to betray him was already in a bad place. But I want to look at this word troubled. We've brought it up before. You see it underlined up behind me. Here's the Greek word. You see it come up behind me. The way you say it is itaraxin, and it means disturbed equanimity. Jesus. This is the way Jesus is. He is calm in all circumstances. He knows he can take care of whatever. But just like when his friend Lazarus died, in that moment, it bothered him because people were hurting. It bothers him when you're hurting. And in this particular moment, he's hurting. Because someone that he loves and trusts is going to betray him. He was troubled in his spirit, deep into his soul. His equanimity was disturbed. His soul was disturbed. Why? You'll see. Verses 22 through 24, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. I did not skip the word the. It's not there. It's not in the original. It was reclining at table with Jesus' side, at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. And I love what's happening right here. So John is leaning up against Jesus at the table. It's kind of a common thing. We talked about this before. They're reclining, and some are reclining on each other. And you only do that if you're really close. And everybody knew that John and Jesus were really close. So here, as Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. In this intimate moment, they're all feeling close. This is a, this is a group of people that are going to change the course of history. They know this is big, what they're a part of. And they're sitting around. I mean, you've been in moments like this where you, you feel like this, this, is, this group that we have is special. 
Some of you, you tell stories about these groups that you used to have together. Maybe it was in college or in the military or, or at work. You had these groups of people that y'all were close. This is this group. It's very close. And, and Jesus drops a bomb in the middle of this intimate moment. One of you is going to betray me. And if you're one that's not going to do it, I don't know, if you're like me, you're probably going to be thinking, oh, I hope it's not me, I hope it's not me, I hope it's not me. <laughs> you know, I mess up, but I don't want to mess up that big. You know, so you're sitting around the table and Peter, who is consistently messing up, you know, you've seen it, you know how he just keeps on doing this. So instead, so he holds back, which is not like Peter, for a moment, he realized this is an intimate thing, I'm not going to mess it up. So he, instead, he asked John, Get him to say who it is. <laughs> he doesn't want to do it himself because he knows Jesus might come down on him like a hammer. Instead, John, John, who, who, who's going to betray him? Jesus answered, It is he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas the son of Simon Iscariot. So understand how this plays out. And some, some would suggest that Jesus only answered John. Like he whispered to John. Like John said, hey, who is it? And Jesus said, watch this. I'll dip the bread, hand it to somebody. That's who it is. And maybe Jesus spoke it out loud for everybody to hear. Either way, he's going to reveal to at least one we know two, maybe all of them. He dips his bread. And he raises it up. And if I were John, I'd be in suspense. My heart would be racing. I hope he doesn't hand it to me. <laughs> you know, that's what I would be thinking. And he hands it to Judas. And that tells me, in that intimate setting, everybody thought Judas was close to Jesus because he was physically close to Jesus. I mean, if you're going to sit at the table and you get to sit right next to Jesus, pretty close to Jesus. John was right up against him. Judas was close enough for Jesus to hand the bread. So if you can imagine, John on one side, Judas on the other. No wonder he had so much disturbed iniquity deep into his soul. This is someone he had hopes for. Someone he loved. If you haven't noticed, we've answered some trivial questions. Verse 27, Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, meaning Judas. Jesus said to him, What you're going to do, do it quickly. You know, this kind of language is used again later, not in John, but later in the story it happens. It's when Jesus is going to be physically betrayed by Jesus, I mean, or by Judas. It's right before it happens. And he says, in Matthew's account, he says, do what you must do, friend. In front of the armed guards in Gethsemane, just before they take Jesus, Matthew records Jesus calling Judas friend. Friend, 
do what you came to do. Very similar language. So he says this to Judas now, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, also pay attention to this fact that at that time, Satan entered him. I do want to remind you of something that we've already gone over in John chapter 12, and I'll read it in verse 4 and following. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. You remember? Remember when Mary anointed Jesus with oil and wiped his feet with her hair? Remember that story? And Judas was already doing things he shouldn't do. He's stealing from Jesus in the flesh, from his group. He's stealing. And he, and he tries to make a righteous statement. Well, hey, can't, we, why can't we sell this and for this much money and give some to the poor? He didn't want that. He wants more money so he can steal more money. And people do this. They act like they're righteous when they're not. And they come up with these ideas that sound like, oh, that sounds very charitable. Sounds very nice. Sounds like the right thing to do. It was the wrong thing to do. And Jesus corrected him. Y'all remember this story well, because I told you about some cologne that I own. And I didn't clarify because I told you I own this stuff. I own the generic version, just so you know. I don't don't own that uh, uh, very expensive cologne. But I want to make it a, uh, a point to bring this to your attention. Judas invited the devil into his life already. Before Jesus handed the bread to him in our story. He invited the devil into his life when he started stealing, probably even before that, when he started desiring to steal. And then he did. And then he began to make up things that sound good on the surface So he could get these ideas out there and then steal some more. The devil was already in his life. He was already living for the devil. Stories before our story today. Just keep that in mind. Now, in our text, verse 27, I want to put it up there again. You see it, John 13, 27. He told him what you do. What you're going to do, do it quickly. It says Satan entered him. I want to show you John chapter 17. This is fast forwarding ahead to some more chapters. Verse 12. This is Jesus praying. Look at this. While I was with them, I kept them in your name. He's talking about his disciples, which you have given me. He's praying to the Father. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. What he was saying to the Father is that I didn't lose any of these you put in my care, talking about the twelve, except one. This is Judas. I know, I I know there's there's a lot of people that will argue, it's like, oh, no, 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 once you're a Christian, you're always a Christian. Not Judas. He He was once saved, then lost. It brings up something that I'm a little bit concerned about, and I'm excited at the same time. There's this revival that's happening, and it's happening uh, in 
more than one place now. You've heard about the Asbury Revival. It's been in the news and it's staying in the news. It's still going on. And if you, do, if you read your history, you'll learn about the Asbury College. It's now Asbury University and the seminaries across the street. It was started many, many years ago, and it's had a long history. It started out, it had uh, Methodist influence. In fact, it started the first Methodist school in uh, the state of Kentucky. Um, and, and then it had some charismatic stuff happen in it. It even had what is identified as restorationist history. At, at a particular point in time, they were actually trying to get back to the New Testament model of Christianity, uh, what the church in the New Testament looks like. So they've got all kinds of different influence in their history. And a man by the name of Hughes, who had actually started the college, was kicked out of the college. He was removed. He was the president, and they removed him, and it broke his heart. And he started another college, a Christian one, but it failed. And as he got older, he continued to tell people how much he loved the college he started, that that was his baby. And he was respected so much that they actually brought him back when they dedicated the Hughes building that they're having the revival in today. I think it seats 1,300 or 1,500 people. It's not a large uh, chapel. But what started as uh, on February 8th, I think it was, um, it was just a chapel service, which this is what colleges do that are Bible colleges. And this is a university, but it's got a Bible college background. And they were having a chapel service, and, a, and a, as I understand it, a student came forward and began to repent of his sins openly in front of everyone, confessed them, repented, and that led to more people doing the same thing. And then that led to more and more people. Uh, and, and there's been a revival going for days now. It's just kept going. They, they've, cycled, recy- they've cycled in other band members and speakers. There's no, there's no big names. There's no big name bands. There's no big name speakers. Oh, they're showing up. They're on the peripherals. They're on the outside looking in. Even Kyle Eidelman was there over a week ago. He was there observing and praying that, hey, may this revival happen again, because it happened in 1970. It went for, I forget how many hours, but the same thing. It just kind of kept going. So it's still going now. And as a result of this, there's, these things are happening other places. And some of us are paying attention. We're going, oh my goodness, is this going to be a revival in our country? Wouldn't that be wonderful? If we had a real revival in our country, that'd be wonderful. But I'm, I'm skeptical and I don't want to be. I'm just skeptical because of what I've witnessed so many times. Sometimes what we call revival is what we call revival, and it's not really revival. Now, just so you know, I believe there are probably hundreds, maybe thousands of people that are genuinely having revival inside of them as a result of what's happening in Asbury. I think it feels like to some of us when we read about it, revival happens inside of us, and it's genuine. But I've watched this happen too many times. People will make Christianity so easy that it feels and it looks on the surface like it's a good thing. And they do it like this. It'd be like me, preach a message and go, okay, so if you want in on this, if you want to be a follower, or I shouldn't say that way, if you want in on this and you want to have peace in your life, then all you got to do is accept Jesus. That is not the truth. That's not in the Bible. What we're told is you have to live for him. It's not just as easy as, okay, I'll take the free thing and I'm going to keep doing everything I've been doing because I like doing what I do. It's not that. That's not Christianity. 
Yes, it feels good if somebody tells you, guess what? If you pray this prayer, you're going to heaven and there's nothing you could ever do to change that. You're forever saved. That feels good if you felt lost. But if, you, if you're lost and you want to be saved, read the Bible. It tells you you have to live for Jesus. You don't just get a gift that somebody else gives you and you don't have to change anything. You actually have to change how you live. You can't work your way to heaven. But Jesus compels us to demonstrate our faith by how we conduct our lives. Live for him. If he's your king, then serve him. If he's your Lord, then he is over you. That's the way it works. So I'm skeptical. I'm hopeful. I would love revival to happen in all our schools and all of our legislatures and all of our workplaces. It would be wonderful in our communities to have a revival, and I hope we do. And I hope that my skepticism is misplaced. I hope that people are being taught that they have to live for Jesus. They actually have to change their focus and make Him their priority. I'm going to, after I read John 17, 12, I want you to read between the lines of these things when we put them together. Judas doomed himself. The question of how can he be held accountable for his behavior if Satan entered into him when Jesus handed him the bread? We already learned, we read before, he invited Satan into his life. I made a foolish decision, a few of them, when I was in high school. When it, it was kind of a weird thing that happened. I, I wasn't really committed, but somebody offered this trip. These high school kids can go on this trip to this, to this special event at a, local, at a Bible college. It was nine hours away, actually. It'd be like driving to Boise. And I, they said, it's free. Church will pay for it. I thought, yeah, that'll be fun. So I... I invited a bunch of my friends, and we went. And then we get there, and they're telling us that we have to go to classes. I'm like, oh, man, this is not going to be fun. But one of them said, rock out. And it said it's about rock music. And I love music. So I went to that one. And this guy was talking about all these, this music I was listening to and how bad it was. And he was, he was talking about how if you play it backwards, it's this. And I'm like, I don't play it backwards. What are you thinking? Who, who listens to music backwards? But because it was a great event and there were prayers that pulled me into them and I felt like God was trying to get me closer to him, I thought I needed to be doing the praying thing more. One of my friends, we got back to my house after the trip and I just thought, you know, I, I need to do this. And so I, I took my, I had a record player. Some of you don't even really know what that looks like, but they're coming back. So, and I took one of my records that the guy was talking about. I had it ready, and I thought, I don't know how to make it play backwards. How do you do this? Isn't it going to ruin the needle in the record? I don't know. But I took it apart, and, uh, and as I took it apart and looked at it, I thought, I don't know what to do. So in, with my friend, I said, I think we should pray. <laughs> so we prayed, and it was like the first time I ever initiated a prayer with somebody. And he looked at me and he, and he, afterwards, and he's like, you ever done that before? No. <laughs> but then I looked down, and I saw the motor, and, I, and I, I took the buckle off the motor, and I thought, I wonder if you just flip it, because it's magnets. So I flipped it, put it all back together, and it played backwards. And, and I discovered things that 
my music was saying backwards, the, the guy didn't tell me, and it was really bad. And I began to realize that there was a lot of evil in my life that I had invited in. So I talked to the youth minister of that church I went with, and I said, hey, I think I want to study this, this, this evil, satanic stuff. So I did. I, I got a hold of a satanic Bible. I got a hold of a Anton, that's a, Anton LaVey who, who wrote that, fabricated it. And then Aleister Crowley's book, book of Witchcraft. My youth minister said, don't do that. Don't let, rely on the experts. Don't you do it. Because if you do it, you're going to be inviting the devil in. You don't realize you're doing it. You're not meaning to do it. But that's what you're doing. So I ignored what he said because I was foolish. I was younger and, than I am today and more foolish than I am today. And I did it. And if, if I had time, I'd tell you stories in a different setting other than this one. Because you would have nightmares if I told you the things that happened to me, my family, in our home. And the crazy things that happened in my life after that, as a direct result, um, it actually still blows my mind to this day. I wasn't introducing stealing. I wasn't introducing... Uh, any type of idolatry. I, I wasn't trying to do evil. I was trying to learn what I shouldn't be doing. And inadvertently, I didn't even mean to, I was inviting the devil into my life and uh, into the lives of my family members. And Judas, he willingly, knowingly, and purposely invited the devil into his life by devilish behaviors. So you can do it on you can do it on purpose. You can start doing very bad things you know God doesn't want you to do and what you're doing is inviting the devil into your life. But you can also do it inadvertently. I've had a conversation with one of my adult children this this week because they wanted to know why we didn't allow them to read certain books and watch certain movies because I have a background, and I know you can inadvertently invite the devil in. Judas didn't do that. He knowingly committed sins. And that's, sometimes we do that too. It's, it's almost inadvertently, but we know better. We shouldn't be looking at that through our phone or the Internet. We shouldn't be watching that on the TV. We shouldn't be reading that because of the stuff it's got in it. We shouldn't be talking like that. We shouldn't be doing those things. We know we shouldn't be doing, and there we are being like Judas. Don't do that. Because if you're sitting around the table and you feel close to Jesus, and you feel like he's going to go, one of you is going to betray me, if you are doing those things on purpose that you know he doesn't want you to do, then you're the most likely one to be thinking, I hope he doesn't hand it to me. I hope he I don't know he's going to hand it to me. That's what it's going to feel like. Okay. We'll move on. <clears throat> Can you jump to the next slide there? I didn't give you a warning. There you go. I want to read you out of Matthew chapter 12. Look at this. This is very insightful. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. 
Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Jesus gives us an analogy, and he's talking about what's about to take place in that particular moment, but it gives us an idea of how things go. Because now I just gave you this analogy that you might be the one going, I know he's going to hand it to me. I know he's going to hand it to me because you've been doing some things you shouldn't be doing. He does assure us that if we empty our house of the evil that was in it and we welcome in the spirit of God, there's no room for these other, other evil spirits. But if you just decide to stop doing the bad, but you're not living by the Spirit, then there's room for evil to come in. So the key is live by the Spirit. I just wanted to throw that out there. Okay, so let's go back into the text and wrap it up. John chapter 20, uh, 13, verses 28 and following. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should go give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. You can only wonder what was happening in Judas's mind. <coughs> but at least we know he was uncomfortable enough to dismiss himself from the intimacy that was happening in the room. He didn't belong. What about me? Here we have some bullets in the practical application of today. You'll see it come up behind me. What about me? Three things. It disturbs Jesus' equanimity when we distance ourselves from him, when we distance from him. So I must stay close to him. Jesus was deeply disturbed in his soul because Judas had chosen to stiff-arm him. Jesus feels the same way when we do that. So don't do that. When Jesus is trying to pull you close, go ahead and move in. Second, welcoming evil into our minds can lead to ultimate doom. So I must consistently pour his wisdom into my mind. And the third and final thing, abiding in Him, living by the Spirit, protects one's soul. So I must tenaciously live for Him. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for giving us passages right out of your word like this, even today, that force us to think about where we stand with you. Lord, in our prayers, we like to say things. I, I like to say, Lord, I, I love you. But Lord, sometimes I know you're not feeling it. By what I say and by what I do. So God, help us. Help us all to respond as you try to pull us closer. We want to be close to you. We want to, we want to be intimate with you. We want you to know that we are loyal. So help us with that.
In Jesus' name, amen.